Good morning. Uh, we are uh, Don and uh, Corey Rose. Uh, some people were just asking uh, a little bit about our family. These are our three children. This is at our son's graduation last year. He just finished his first year of college. It's Micah. He's going to be 19 in July, and our daughter Emily is, uh, is in 11th grade, and our son Josh was in 6th grade. And uh, so that's a little snapshot of our family. This summer, we've been married 25 years, and we'd love to say to you we've been married 25 years because we're both amazingly incredible people, but we will tell you that we are absolutely not. We are a couple who have grown closer together only through God's grace, by his strength, and by his love. In fact, in the 25 years that we've been married, it's really only in the last decade that we have made a concentrated effort to grow closer, especially spiritually. And, and that journey, you know, it's one of those things you wish, oh, where was this when we first got married? Um, but praise God that we got there because a lot of times people don't. And so we praise God for the aha moments and the new spiritual understandings. And as we continue to grow, we relish the opportunity to just try and share some of our experiences, some of the things that we've learned, some of the things we are continuing to learn. And our prayer is also that you might connect with some of those experiences. And if we have the opportunity afterward to share some of your experiences with us, we appreciate that. So our session was inspired in part by a gift we received on our wedding day from Don's brother Wade and it was a freestanding plaque and on it there was a poem called Marriage Takes Three by Beth Stuckwish. So I'm just gonna read that poem uh, now. Marriage takes three to be complete. It's not enough for two to meet. They must be united in love by love's creator, God above. Then their love will be firm and strong, able to last when things go wrong. Because they've felt God's love and know he's always there, he'll never go. And they have both loved him in kind with all the heart and soul and mind. And in that love, they've found the way to love each other every day. A marriage that follows God's plan takes more than a woman and a man. It needs a oneness that can be only from Christ. Marriage takes three. When I first read this poem as a young 20-year-old uh, bride, I had all the best intentions to follow this principle. Little did I know just how difficult it would be to put that into practice. And I'm sure if you've been married for a while, you can probably understand that a little bit. Uh, this poem has been a good reminder, though, for us over the years. Through, through our relationship with God and through his love, we can find the strength we need to love our spouse each day, even when they might not be the most lovable. <laughs> it's also a good reminder that God is always with us, and his desire is to bless our marriage. So we don't want to dwell a whole lot on, on the idea of, of God, because I think the one thing that we can all agree on from the very beginning of the Bible is that God is sovereign, that he is our Lord, he is our creator. And so as an individual who follows him, is he the Lord of my life? Similarly, in my marriage relationship, is he the Lord of our lives? And I think we recognize that when we uh, give him the glory and we follow him as our Lord, that that's going to have an impact on our lives. This is a foundational truth in the Bible from the beginning. If you read the first few commandments, it makes it clear that there is only one God, the true God, who is worthy of our praise and to whom we are to submit our lives. And so we have to remember that this is as true in our married lives as it is in our unmarried lives. 
So as we consider marriage and family, the one thing that I wanted to share was just that challenge that Joshua had given to the Israelites when he confronts them and commands them to make a choice. But he doesn't say, I will follow God. He says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And in that sense, if we build a foundation that has a house where he is the one that we follow, there's going to be some blessing. I love the subtitle of Gary Thomas's book, Sacred Marriage. It is, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? And he explores how marriage is an area of spiritual formation, that it's designed to actually help us grow closer to God and deeper in our faith. I think you're probably familiar with this diagram, Marriage Takes Three, the triangle where God is at the top and the husband and wife at the bottom are moving closer to God. And as they do, they're not only drawing closer to him, but they're drawing, drawing closer one to the other. And since we're made in God's image, and this is something I think we don't, we know, but we don't actually consciously think about. We are made in God's image, and so is our spouse. So doesn't it make sense that we would see him in each other and feel his presence in our marriages? But of course, we recognize with all the chaos that our married lives bring that it's very difficult to see him in our spouse sometimes. So we need to invite God's presence into our marriages on a regular basis. Moreover, a loving God enables us to truly love each other. And we'll come back to that a little bit later because I think this is one of the roles of the Holy Spirit to enable us to truly and fully love each other. Consider this. We believe that God says to each of us who is married, let me, God, love your spouse through you. Let that sit for a second. Let me, God, love your spouse through you. And how does that impact the way in which you relate to one another? We need to believe that God wants to draw us not just closer and deeper in love with him, but deeper and closer in love with each other. And when we think about that, that's a good starting place. So we can place God at the, at the head, and, and we're looking to him. But we also recognize that God is not just the Father. God is not just our Lord and Creator. He is also the Son. Consider Christ. And the picture in Ephesians 5. So actually what we'd like to do is um, we consider inviting Christ into our marriage relationship. We want to take a look at, at Ephesians 5. And typically what we do when we're talking about marriage is we, we jump right to the second half. Because that's where he talks about wives and husbands. And I think that's a mistake. I think there's a reason that the preceding verses are there. And so we just like to read through that because we're going to reference back to this passage several times throughout the rest of our presentation. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, immoral impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So let no one deceive you with empty words. 
For because of such things, God's wrath comes to those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And this is a little shift here. We see everything that's come before this really hangs on what comes next. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. But be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Everything we talked about before that is living in the Spirit. It's the Spirit that enables us. So many times in Scripture, we read these lists of things that God calls us to be, and if you're like me and I look at that list and I just say, God, there's no way I can do all that. And the short answer is, you're right. That's why I sent you a helper. If you are filled with the Spirit, this is possible. And so, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God, the Father, for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Little turn here. And the question to ask is, why does this follow what we just read? Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, and he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and they care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body excuse me, body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So how holy is marriage to be? We see here the image of bride and groom are used to express the relationship of Jesus and the church. And here we see two main ideas, submission, Christ to the father and the wife to the husband, and sacrificial love. Christ gave his life for his bride, and husbands are to be willing to give their lives for their wives. We will return to these ideas of submission and sacrificial love a bit later. For now, we want to focus on seeing Christ as our model, and not just as individuals, but as a couple. Christ himself the God of the universe came in humility as one who serves God's will and others' needs, and he calls us to the same thing. But Christ is perfect. Christ is the Son of God. 
Christ is God. How could we ever be like him? On our own, this is an impossible task. But this is where we can seek to focus today. We are being transformed to be like him, which can only happen through the work of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18. So this is where we really want to dwell, and given the focus of the theme on Harvard this year, is this idea of what is the role that the Holy Spirit plays in our lives? So make no mistake, the first half of Ephesians 5 focuses on what? Living in the Spirit. And then, immediately following that, is this little mini treatise on the marriage relationship and relating it to the relationship of Christ and the church. Well, I think it's fitting that these two are put together because if there's any area of the Christian life in which the Holy Spirit's help is necessary, I think it's marriage. <laughs> in Ephesians 5 and 18, the Apostle Paul states, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. When people get drunk and we see the thought, their behavior, the what they say, they begin to lose control. And if they are driving, we say they're driving under the influence. Paul encourages us to be under the influence, but of the Spirit, guiding, directing, helping, comforting us as we seek to follow God. Now, I think we all know that the effects of alcohol wears off. And so can the influence of the Spirit if we allow it. So here when it talks about being filled, it's not a one-time thing. You're filled, boom, you're done. You don't have to come back. It's kind of like a car eating up gasoline. You have to go back and fill the tank again. It's not going to stay there. It's, this is an action that is ongoing. It is something that we have to become conscious of on a daily basis. And when we clothe ourselves in Christ and receive the gifts of God's Spirit to dwell in us, we can recognize that reality, but do we allow and trust him to influence our daily lives? The bigger question in the context of what we're presenting is, do we allow and trust the Holy Spirit to influence us as husbands and wives? Now. So as we considered uh, this topic, we felt a little over our heads so we invited three Christian couples, all married between 23 and 25 years, so that's 96 years of combined uh, marriage, to answer what seemed to us uh, to be a simple question, and that was, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in your marriage? Can you guess what their initial response was? Anyone? No. I don't know. None of them <laughs> in go. all their years of marriage, and we confess that we were on the same page, ever really thought about it. Yes, we all believe the Holy Spirit was always there and had played some kind of role in our marriages, but all of us had only ever thought of the Holy Spirit in the context to each of us as individuals, but not as couples. Okay. Good. Um, sorry, I just got distracted there. Not as. As we considered, conversed, and explored this question, we unanimously acknowledged the Holy Spirit was there and active, but we struggled to identify how. Given the theme of Harbor this year, we won't go through all the roles the Holy Spirit plays in our lives, but you can be certain there is a lot of the same work happening to us as couples as there is for us as individuals. When we began to consider ourselves in a spiritual context, the work blessing, and the presence of the Holy Spirit became something for which we thank and praise God. We also celebrate in knowing that when we yield to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, our marriages will lift up Christ, and both point to and honor God. 
making the Father and the Son known by what we say and what we do. I think one of the, and, and I don't know how many of you have taught Sunday school or, or remember how we've taught Sunday school or how we try to uh, understand this idea that God is three and God is one. You know, it's, it's one of those things you say, but if you really start thinking about it, it becomes a little overwhelming. It's one of the great mysteries, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, distinct yet sing singular. And in a less complex way, I think we can catch just a glimpse of this complexity in the other great relational mystery. And the other great relational mystery is a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And we know that non-Christian marriages can endure. It is true. But we also know that a marriage relationship that is accepted and embraced as a holy institution and is at its deepest level spiritual cannot be broken. But what is that unifier? What is it that makes that possible? Well, we believe this is one of the works of the Holy Spirit in our marriage. So if we back up, actually, to chapter 4, in Ephesians, we read, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. And we often look at this, and it's correct, in the context of how we relate with all people, but how much more vital is this in our marriage relationship? Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Augustine once wrote that the Spirit is the natural love between God and His Son. And if we think about that, we have been invited into that kind of relationship connected by the very same spirit. The spirit is one of the manifestations of God's love to and for us. I don't know if you were here for the opening keynote with Rick Atchley and he talked about this great gift and that's exactly what it is. He unites us with God, he unites us with brothers and sisters in Christ and he unites us together as husband and wife. But to embrace what the spirit can do in our marriages we have to consider something. We kind of boil it down to four distinct thoughts. Acknowledge, awaken, accept, and adopt. So we need to acknowledge that our marriage needs help. Early in our married life, it became clear that we were going to need some help if our marriage was going to survive. Though we loved each other deeply, we began to recognize that we just didn't have the strategies to cope with the struggles that tend to arise when you're in a marriage relationship. One example of such struggles were the financial pressures that we faced, which of course is a common source of tension for married couples. We were young, Don was 22 and I was 20 when we got married, and Don was still in university, I had a minimum wage job, so financial burdens were a significant source of stress and continued to be for many years. Since we both came from broken homes and healthy conflict resolution skills had not been modeled for us at home, we just seemed to keep having the same argument over and over and never got anywhere. But we believed that God had brought us together and that he meant for us to be together, and we were both very determined and serious about seeing our marriage as a covenantal commitment rather than a contract that could be broken. So we persevered. <coughs> Over time, we also discovered that through our church community, we were surrounded by many examples of couples who were modeling a healthy Christian marriage. 
we began to seek out opportunities to spend time with these couples and to learn from these couples. The point is, sometimes we all fall short in our marriages and we all need help in our marriages. The mistake couples often make is not getting help until their relationship is deeply and sometimes irreparably broken. It is hard enough to have a good relationship, but when we consider what God calls us to be as husbands and wives, it is downright daunting. From the start, we need help and to acknowledge that need. So it's one thing to recognize, especially early in a marriage relationship, that you need help to be successful in your relationship. One of the ways we look for that help was outside. One of the ways that we were helped that we did not realize early in our marriage was the gift that God had given us inside, his Holy Spirit. And that's the other thing that we need to do. We have to awaken to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our marriages. We need to invite the presence of God's Holy Spirit into our married lives. And that can only happen if we are conscious. So we might acknowledge the help, but do we invite the presence of the Holy Spirit into our married relationship? So I've had the opportunity to be a leader for the last 12 years. I'm the chief administrator for a Christian high school in Canada. And in those years as a leader, I have recognized the importance and the vitality of delegating responsibilities. And I'm going to tell you something. I want to delegate responsibilities. I need to delegate responsibilities. I completely accept the idea that delegation is vital if you're going to serve for any length of time and be successful. But when I reflect on my years as a leader, what do I notice? I acknowledge the fact that I should. I actually want that to happen, but I didn't do it. Why didn't I do it? I didn't want to surrender control. I didn't fully trust the good people that I should have trusted. That's true in my professional life. But I think this is true in our spiritual lives. I think we can acknowledge sometimes that we need God's help, particularly through His Spirit. But do we actually trust Him? to give us the help that we need? Are we aware and conscious of his presence in our lives? We just try to get along like we always have on our own steam and by our own efforts, and we wonder why we struggle. We especially turn a deaf ear to the spirit when he says things that we don't want to hear. So I had an opportunity for a couple of uh, uh, years. I, I met once a week with three other men uh, for breakfast. It was a time of sharing. And prayer, we kind of had this little mantra. We're going to share something that's positive and a challenge in our professional lives, in our families, in our married life, and support one another. Kind of like an accountability group, uh, a support group. It was an incredible time. Well, a few years ago, uh, Corey had this calling. She decided that she was going to stop doing the work that she was doing, and she wanted to become a kinder music educator. But here's what it meant. It meant no income and then paying money to do the year-long program in order to get it started. And I don't know if any of you are familiar with Kinder Music, but it's like a, you're, you're a business owner. You set up a, like a franchise. And so you also have to make that investment to get that business off the ground. And so we're talking about years of commitment. I couldn't get past in my head, so you're not only not making money, but we're spending money, right? That's what I couldn't get past. So I came into this breakfast with my friends. And I sat down, and I laid this on the table because I was really struggling with it. And what was my expectation, do you think? You know I have good friends because they didn't tell me what I wanted to hear. I was waiting for them to go, yeah, you, you tell her. You know what? She can't do this. One of my friends at that table looked me in the eyes and said, don't 
be an idiot, support your wife. <laughs> now, I want to tell you, I was really angry. I drove home angry. I was angry for a couple of days. But it was only in the quietness of prayer and discernment that I distinctly heard the Holy Spirit saying the exact same thing. Up to that point in our marriage, every single sacrifice had been made one way, by my wife to me. It was time for me to do that for her. But I didn't want to hear it, and it took being confronted, but then it took listening to the voice that I believe was the Holy Spirit saying, this is the place to go. And these years later, it was one of the best decisions that we could have ever made. But I don't think I could have supported her if I had not listened to that voice. So maybe a little bit similar. One of the couples from our friend group shared her consciousness of a significant decision that her husband made that radically affected their family. There had been several times in their marriage when these kinds of decisions had been a source of conflict and unrest. Her husband was impulsive and she was pragmatic. The two don't always mix well. <laughs> in this one case, her mind automatically thought of several reasons not to consider the idea, but there was another voice that she could not at first identify. It was one that was soothing. It did not articulate specific words, but it communicated a rightness and a peace with what was being presented. She had never experienced this kind of dissonance before. She trusted it, however, much to the shock and surprise of her husband, who had steeled himself for a fight. Only years later, considering the long-term benefits of that choice, did she reconsider how that crucial moment played out. She believes that insistent, counterintuitive voice was the spirit. This caused her to wonder. That repeated idea, voice, thought that seeks to break into our immediate reactionary responses should be heard and not ignored. I just realized I hadn't revealed it. We need to accept the help that the Holy Spirit presents. But once we accept that, what do we do with it? We need to adopt to walking together in the Spirit. In an excellent example of one way that this might look, we've adapted a segment that's taken from an online article called How the Power of the Holy Spirit Guides Love in Marriage by Bill and Pam Farrell. This was posted on April 4th, 2016. So we're substituting ourselves for Bill and Pam. We're going to return here for a moment to Ephesians 5 where it says, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body. But here's the thing. When I think about the way I care for my own body, this might not resonate with my instincts. Yes, first, maybe I don't care very well for my own body, and that's certainly not the way I want to care for my wife. But I'm missing the principle that I would want to care for it. Then I think about this idea of feeding and caring. And when you read those words, it's almost like a parent to a child and not a husband to a wife. It's counterintuitive. Of course, all of this is missing the point. The point is, I need to communicate love to my wife. Except the way that I perceive and express love may not be the way in which she perceives and needs to have love expressed. The Holy Spirit, thankfully, think about this, is an expert on how to communicate love to my wife. Why? Because he knows her in a way that I never can. Husbands, when we realize that our instincts are not always our best guides, we may start praying, God, will you give me ideas for expressing love to my wife that will make her 
feel cared for. It comes back to listening to what sometimes may seem like a counterintuitive voice in our minds. Corey and I love each other very differently. And I think in most of your marriage relationships, you're going to know that that is true. And there is some psychology to this, of course. We talk about love languages and how they are different. And I can mentally try to understand and speak her language. But consider this. How much easier would it be to accept and implement those ideas if I open myself to the spirit who knows her love language better than I ever can? So love may manifest in simple things that she values that I don't see as valuable, like cleaning up around the house or doing some laundry or, big one for us, acknowledging the demands of her life, especially as it relates to what she does for me and for our children, instead of complaining about all the hard work I had to do today. The problem is, this may not seem like love to us, men. The prompt that comes into our minds Sometimes we steamroll it and we need to listen. We have to respond to and follow the directions that we get, I believe, more often than we realize. The wife must respect her husband, verse 33. Just as I seek to be loved, I know Dawn seeks to be respected. However, this doesn't connect with my instincts any better than Dawn's challenge to feed and care for me especially when you add in the idea of submission. The challenge to submit to one another in verse 21 refers to military officers who rank themselves under one another to accomplish a mission, but that information doesn't make the principle any easier for me to accept. As a result, just as Dawn asked God to help him better understand the best ways to love me, I need to ask God to show me what to say and do to respect Dawn. When I'm able to express to Don the ways in which he is a good father, how I appreciate his mind, or that he provides well, it is not just stroking ego, especially when it is authentic. So these are just a couple practical ways of trying to be more conscious, to pause and listen and respond to some of the help that the Holy Spirit offers us in our married relationship. Uh, in his chapter in Sacred Marriage, Gary Thomas has a chapter about inviting the presence of God. And a couple of these ideas come from that because it is applicable to this idea of adopting to walking with the Spirit. Obviously, the number one reason that relationships fail is what? Communication. Communication. Communication breakdown, lack of communication misdirections in terms of communication. We need to speak and listen to each other, but this is the quote from Gary Thomas. When you think about that, I mean, we can talk to each other all the time and go in circles, as Corey talked about when we were first married. But he said, think of it this way, every word spoken to a loved one is either an invitation to experience the holy or to experience the chaos. And if we turn into God and his spirit, then I believe that more often what we exchange is going to be a holy experience and not a chaotic experience. A couple of other ideas, and these ones I think we know, but it's one of the things that we talked about with our friend group that we struggled with. Uh, I know I study the Bible. I know Corey studies the Bible, but we hardly do it together, study together, pray together. But to me in this list, the one that I think we most often miss is listen together, not to each other, but to what God is seeking to do in our married life through his spirit. If we do these things, we will grow together. 
So if these simple ideas kind of set a stage, what we'd like to spend the rest of our time doing, when we were talking in our friend group and we asked them this question that at first they said, I'm not sure, but they started reflecting on their life's experiences. They started reflecting on observations that they'd made in other faithful couples. When they started doing that, they realized that there were several things that kept coming up that they believed the Holy Spirit had a hand in. And so we want to highlight five ways that the Holy Spirit is seen active in the marriages of us and our friends. Now, we want to be very clear, these were, are not meant to be prescriptive, but descriptive. Personal observations and experiences with which we hope other couples can relate. So this is not an exhaustive list of all the things that the Holy Spirit does for a married couple, but those of which we have become most conscious and most aware and that we'd like to share with you. The Spirit facilitates the ability to be many things for our spouse, and one of them is holy. If we are holy, we will be faithful and unified. Think again of what we observed earlier. Marriage is a reflection of the deepest unity, the unity of God and his church. In his article, Marriage in the Holy Spirit, Johann Christoph Arnold <coughs> captures this so well. In a, in a Christian marriage, therefore, it is the unity of God's kingdom in Christ and in the Holy Spirit that matters most. However, genuine unity like joy or love cannot be forced or created artificially. Only the Spirit can bring true unity. Only the Spirit can free us from our pettiness and from the forces of guilt and sin that divide us from God and from each other. With our own wills, we can certainly try to free ourselves from these forces, and we may be able to overcome them to a certain degree and for a certain period of time, but we should remember <coughs> that ultimately, only the spirit of love can overcome the flesh. There's a supernatural power in the spouse who stays by the side of a partner who has forgotten him or her. I think of my grandma looking after my grandfather with Alzheimer's disease. She refused to put him in a home and took care of him day and night. She slept on the couch with one eye open for many years. This took a toll on her mentally, physically, and emotionally, but she sacrificed her own comforts and desires to be there for him. She never stopped loving him, even, even though in the end he did not recognize her. Their connection, however, was so deep and, the spiritual, and spiritually powerful that nothing but the power and strength of the Holy Spirit could have kept her devoted to her husband to the end of his life. True love. And I think we just saw an expression of that. I think when we talk about true love, especially in our contemporary Western world, and it is romanticized, uh, it's a fable, it's a myth. People don't understand what true love really is. True love is God's love, agape love, sacrificial love, unconditional love. And when you think about that, the reality is in our current broken world, that is impossible without God in your life. We can only experience that love by coming to Him. And what connects us to Him? His Holy Spirit. In Romans 5 and 5 it says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If we are willing, we can ask the Holy Spirit to teach us how to love because true love is born out of the Holy Spirit. When we struggle to love the way that God loves, sacrificially and completely, we know that this is not part of our earthly flesh or experience, but only experienced and expressed when it is made available through His Spirit. So often we overlook the depth of this truth. We tend to either dismiss true love as a fairy tale, 
or to focus so much energy on finding it that we miss it entirely because all of the representations that the world presents to us, of course, are shallow. And when we get in there, we realize there's nothing holding it up. But true love that stems from the Holy Spirit is not brought about by human effort. A married couple who experiences its blessings will notice their love increasing with every passing year, regardless of the trials that they may encounter. Decades into their marriage, they can still find joy in making each other happy and not hesitate to put the needs of the other ahead of their own needs. And I think the greatest expression for this is when we act unlovable, yet we are still able to find the capacity to love. And I have to confess, I know I have been unlovable many times in the last 25 years for my wife. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller says this. You can only afford to be generous if you actually have some money in the bank to give. In the same way, if your only source of love and meaning is your spouse, then any time he or she fails you, and by the way, if it hasn't happened, you're a miracle. It's going to happen at some point. If there's any time that he or she fails you, it will not just cause grief, but psychological cataclysm. If, however, you know something of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, then you will have enough love, quote-unquote, in the bank to be generous to your spouse, even when you are not getting much affection or kindness in that moment. Too often in our world, forgiveness is seen as weakness. If we are wronged, especially by the person we trust the most, who consequently can therefore hurt us the most, then we should have justice. More often than not, we are encouraged to be strong and cut the betrayer loose. When Jesus challenges us to forgive seven times, 70 times, and this is not even the person with whom we have committed to live our life, we probably respond the way his listeners did. How is this even possible? Only if we walk with the Holy Spirit could it be. In their song, Glory by the Way of Shame, the band down here wrote this verse. She cheated on him twice, but for fear she never told. She finally confessed before her heart ran cold. With pain in his eyes, he walked out of the house and drove to town, bought her a white wedding dress, came home to her and danced to the song of forgiveness. Full and true forgiveness and reconciliation after betrayal can only happen through the Holy Spirit. There's a supernatural power in the spouse who stays by the side of a partner who has betrayed the other. Will the road forward be easy? We trust immediate, will trust immediately snap back to unconditional? No, but the Spirit can facilitate recovery. It's interesting because we automatically go to you know, that betrayal and, and we've either experienced it or know people who have. Um, and the other thing that we want to highlight is we're not, we're not talking about a pattern of behavior that is abuse, right? We're talking about something that has happened that a person wants to repent and move forward from, but sometimes we can't. And the Holy Spirit can facilitate that forgiveness and reconciliation. But when I was sharing this idea with one of my coworkers at, at school, he said, the Holy Spirit can also facilitate forgiveness in the small things. Think about this. How many little ways are we forced to forgive our partner throughout our life. Mm -hmm. So here's the example that he gave me. He said, my wife always leaves cupboard doors open. And I thought, are you serious? I actually kind of chuckled, except he didn't laugh. And I went, uh-oh, this is obviously a problem here. <laughs> and I said, really? So why do you feel so strongly about it? He says, well, I thought it was an irritation too, until one night, in the middle of the night, 
I went to get a glass of water in the kitchen, and in the darkness, I walked into a cupboard door and woke up five minutes later on the kitchen floor. <laughs> Suddenly, that irritation became a much bigger thing. He said, my initial reaction was to retaliate. He said, I believe, and you can laugh at this or not, but he sat there on the floor and said, dear God, help me have patience, help me to love my wife, help us to move forward. We have to forgive on a regular basis if we're to continue in a relationship for decades. And the Holy Spirit can help us do that. <coughs> Mutual submission and selflessness. How can we ever really, truly, completely be selfless without the Holy Spirit of God? In her article, How the Holy Spirit Transforms Marriage, Dorothy Glico writes this. In every conflict, we need to remember that there are not just two stories, but three. The other person's story, your story, and the third story. The third story encompasses both of our experiences, and it is greater than their sum. And in order to discover the third story, we must be still, listen well, listen non-defensively, and commit to extend empathy to the other person. So consider this. We absolutely need the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit who is completely other, and this is the key, not partial to either of us. He loves us both. So in order to pull this off, we recognize that the differentness in unity, marriage relationship, the differentness in the Trinity, it's part of the image of God. So like many couples, Corey and I are very different. And yet, somehow, we've been able to love each other well, despite our differences. Our mutual desire is to follow God, to become more like Christ, and our willingness is to avail ourselves to the Holy Spirit. And we believe that's a big part of why we've enjoyed being married for 25 years. So Corey earlier commented on the challenges of our early married life. Of the two of us, I will tell you, and she will fully, wholeheartedly agree that I'm the one who struggles with selflessness selflessness the most. I am a selfish, proud person. It's the greatest struggle of my life. Two times, Corey placed her needs aside so I could embrace first a career that paid very little in ministry, that I believed in and had some history with, but that she did not, and she didn't understand why it was so valuable, but we did that. We also, when we first got married, what Corey wanted more than anything else in the world was to be a mother. And so we had to have that con We both wanted children. We both have children, praise God. But I didn't want to have children right away. And I at least thank God I knew myself enough to say, here's the deal. I need you for five years because I'm not prepared for you to give anyone else attention. <laughs> but here's the amazing thing. She put aside her greatest desire to wait to start a family. The first time that I ever relented was when we purchased our first home. We were paying next to nothing in rent in a very rundown unit that was bug infested, which didn't bother me at all, but bothered her tremendously. And there was nothing she could do there. What she wanted was a home. So when I consider that time in my life, it was clear that every choice up to that point really had been mine. Something in me knew that this idea of being settled in our home versus this place was what Corey needed most. And it came at a time in my life when I was used to and always expected to get what I wanted. I relented and we bought the house. 
But what but the Holy Spirit could have cut through all my selfishness at that time? There's no need to repeat the don't be an idiot and support your wife story again. (laughs) Sometimes the Spirit is not so subtle. But sometimes that's exactly where the Spirit wants to communicate to us in becoming selfless for the other. A general rule for the good use of time is to accustom oneself to live in continual dependence on the Spirit of God, receiving from moment to moment whatever it pleases Him to give us, referring to Him at once in the doubts which we necessarily run into, turning to Him in the weakness into which goodness slips from exhaustion, calling on Him and lifting oneself to Him when the heart, swept away by material things, sees itself led imperceptibly off the path and finds itself forgetting and drifting away from God. Francois Fenlon, Christian Perfection. In a healthy marriage, we always want to be there for our spouse, giving and affording the unique support the other needs at any given time. Sometimes, particularly when confronted with challenges and struggles, we just do not have the capacity to remain strong. Praise God, the Holy Spirit can give us strength. Often we hear stories of couples who face very difficult circumstances, such as the illness of a child. These times of trial seem to either tear couples apart or bring them closer together. Recently, our good friends, Jeremy and Jody, experienced such a trial with their 15-year-old daughter, Sydney. Sydney was experiencing some ongoing pain in her wrist for the better part of a year. Since the pain would come and go, some time passed before they finally decided they should get this checked out. They set in motion a series of appointments and tests and a lot of waiting and uncertainty. Finally, after several months, it was determined that Sydney had a rare form of cancer and would require surgery. You can imagine this was a very stressful time for our friends. I'm sure there could have easily been finger pointing and blame towards themselves and or each other. Why didn't you notice any signs or symptoms earlier? You should have taken her to the doctor sooner. Hindsight and blame too often go together. However, our friends shared with us that during this ordeal, when one of them was feeling weak and down and scared or angry, the other became strong. Then they would reverse roles. After an almost two-year ordeal, the prognosis is good and the surgery was successful. During this time, though, they had no idea what the outcome would be. Somehow, however, they were able to support the other when it was most needed. As they reflected upon this time in their lives, They realized that the Holy Spirit had been at work in their marriage here. Both are devout and prayerful, wholly committed to trusting God. And this faith, along with what seemed like supernatural strength at times when it was most needed, convinced them that the Holy Spirit enables them to support each other in weakness. If you are a Christian and you are married, God the Father and the Holy Spirit and his Son are there too. Pray to him to help you be more cognizant of the incredible transformative work that all three are trying to do in your married life. Pray together to be more aware of the places and the times when you need the help of the Holy Spirit. Then pray that both of you can be open, aware, and receptive to the blessings that he brings. So may you walk with each other in step with the Spirit, modeling Christ and growing closer to God. Thank you for your attention this morning. We do have a few minutes, so if you have any questions, 
or if you'd like to share any stories, this would be the opportunity. I have a cupboard door story. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. My, my, my dad was impressed that my mom, when they were long-range dating between Illinois and Michigan, uh, that she shut the cupboard doors always. Oh, well, there you go. Now, I never so, thought to ask if one of the other of them had gotten hit in the head. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. There must have been a reason it was important to him. Yeah. I, I think one of the challenges is when we think about uh, the supernatural and, and the Holy Spirit and God's presence, we are looking for these profound big things. And I believe in so many ways it's in the little things that... That, that we are transformed. And I think sometimes we look so much for the, the big, obvious, aha, transcendent moment that we miss all the little things that could have brought us there in the first place. And I think that's where the Holy Spirit most often speaks to us. And the real challenge is we don't stop to listen. We all need encouragement. Mm -hmm. How do you two encourage each other to just encourage each other? The, the biggest thing for me that took me a long time to recognize is, uh, so, so I'm an administrator for a small Christian school. It's, it's, it's a labor-intensive, emotionally draining job. Um, and so it, it's very easy for me to not recognize the commitment that she has. And so the most powerful ways in which I think I've encouraged her as my wife is to acknowledge and thank her for all the ways in which what she does makes it possible for me to do what I do. And I think people don't recognize, any, any of you that have been involved in ministry, you know a spouse makes as much, if not more, sacrifice than the person actually doing, doing the work. Uh, that's one way in which I, I seek to, um, to encourage her. Can you think of a way you encourage me? <laughs> mm. uh, letting you go to a movie or you know, something uh, to have some relaxation that you enjoy. I'll, I will tell you the biggest thing is, is my wife shares me, um, right? Like she allows, uh, um, we have reached a point in our relationship where we have few but concentrated times together. So as an example, when we come to the Pepperdine Lectures, this is our ninth year, we actually come down the weekend before the lectures. So we're in Ontario. And the reason we do that is once a year, we have, that's our annual marital retreat. We don't have our children. It's focus time. Almost every year, even though we say it every year and we forget when we get back to the chaos of our lives, about a day into that concentrated time together, just the two of us, we will say, I actually enjoy being with you. I forgot what it's like being with you. I really like you. Yeah. You know, and because we are able to work into our lives those concentrated opportunities, there are other times when... You know, life is crazy. Uh, I think the biggest mistake is is we marry our jobs or our ministry and we forget about our spouse. And so you've got to find that kind of balance. And so the way in which my wife encourages me is she lets me be that person. But how is she able to do that? Because we make sure that we work on our relationship. Maybe not as continually as she would like, but we work in those concentrated opportunities. And it's not just that, we're more spiritual when we spend concentrated time together. Because most of the other time we're involved with other people, right? We need to do that. Could you develop a little, <clears throat> discuss a little bit more the uh, prayer time together you have? Yeah, now I'm gonna tell you in our relationship, that's the weakest part of our life. So we, we, we pray together, you know, t typical times. Like when we're traveling, we're praying for our kids the whole time. Um, now, the other thing is you have to recognize the difference between you. I don't know if you could tell, but I'm the more chatty of the two. 
So, and, and often, like, uh, Corey is, a, is, a, is introverted, I'm extroverted. Um, she actually, when we pray together and she's given opportunity, nine times out of ten, she's like, I'm good. Um, but we still pray together. So whether I'm saying the words or we have silent, quiet prayer time, the, the point is, is that in those moments, that pulls us closer together. It doesn't matter, like, okay, I've had my 30 seconds, now you have your 30 seconds. It's, it's just the fact that we do it together. Um, the, the bigger part is, I just taught a class to uh, teenagers, you know, talking about, about prayer, is honestly, in our world today, you've got, to, you've got to, like a, like a workout regimen, you have to schedule time and you have to protect it. Because if you don't do that, more often than not, when do we pray? Before meals together, before we go to bed and one of us is starting to fall asleep, right? And that's what we often do as individuals. And so, particularly when we're away and separate from our children, then that means ensuring well, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, the day that we arrived, um, we, had, we, had, we got our rental car, we went to a Starbucks and got our coffee, we were ready to drive down the Pacific Coast Highway, and I almost pulled out of the driving spot, and she put her hand on my arm, and she said, we can't go, we need to pray. And you know what? She wasn't saying, I need to say the words, but we need to pray. So the words came from me, but the initiation came from her, and that was shared, right? We have to do more of that. So a few times um, you said something about um, um, counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. So so um, I was have been under the impression that the Holy Spirit is you think of it as something intuitive that you're really not listening to. Mm -hmm. um, but you said that. Um, you know, the, it, it's sort of the Holy Spirit acts in a counterintuitive way. Yeah. So, so it helped me to, mm -hmm. I guess, distinguish. I, absolutely. Well, I, you know, one of the biggest questions always is, is this my conscience or is this the Holy Spirit? And I'm going to tell you right now. I don't know that you're ever going to be able to tell which is which, right? That, and so in that way, the Holy Spirit is intuitive. What I'm saying is, is when I'm selfish. Um, the reason it's counterintuitive is because in that moment I don't want to do what I should do or what the Holy Spirit would have me do. I want to do what I want to do, not in love for her, but for myself. And in that moment, of course, it's counterintuitive because the, the suggestion, the insistence, and, and you, it, it's one of those times, and I've had this experience so many times in my life, and most of the time I've ignored it. It's just that voice that says, you know, this is the wrong direction, but this is the direction I want to go in. No, but that's the wrong direction. But, and I keep going in the other, that's why it's counterintuitive. You see what I'm saying? It's when our worldly selfishness says, this is what I want to do. And the, and the Holy Spirit is always going to respond in opposition to that because the Holy Spirit's going to say, and, and, and here's the best part of this. I think the best part is almost always when we've responded to what we thought was counterintuitive, this is best for me. In the end, it was actually the direction he was leading me in that was the best. So we talked a couple of, about a couple of major decisions in our lives. You know, me taking a career in ministry that she was, you know, unprepared at that time in our lives for me to take, or, or me supporting her and establishing her business and giving her the support she needed to build that over a couple of years. In, in those cases, now we're at the other side, and I look back and go, that was so much better for us. It was so much better for us. Why? Because God sees the whole picture, and we can't. And we have to trust him that even when it feels like I'm going in the wrong direction at his insistence, that in the end it is the right direction.
Any tips for raising children and yeah. when you, like when a bump in the road comes up and how you come together wow. to <laughs> you took us in a totally different direction. We're great married spouses, but parents, I don't know. Uh, no, it's a great question. I mean, we've been so richly blessed. Um, so I've worked my whole adult life with teenagers and families. Uh, and, and I think once again, even in our, we talked in our married relationship about listening. I think often when, especially when our children do things that disappoint us or that, that make us angry or, or that more often than not frighten us and so we over respond. Um, and it really depends on where your child is. Uh, we've been very blessed in that our, like you listen first, right? You listen first. For me, the hardest part, and I had to change over time in this, is, is to say in this moment when we're, we're, there is no healthy conversation, to have the strength to walk away. Now for my son, that really benefited him. He would go, he's very contemplative, he takes more after his mother actually. Um, and, and he would come back and invariably, then we could have a real conversation. And we didn't always still agree on the same page, but because we stopped, we prayed, we breathed, separately and then we came together and did the same thing together then then those resolutions came with my daughter it's different because she's very confrontational and I'm confrontational and and the the uh, it elevates much faster and and the thing is is I did come to realize we have to separate and do the same thing great strategy work with your brother right except she doesn't want to because her desire is I want this settled now I want this over now but then she gets so agitated that she becomes irrational like her, her arguments don't make sense and then and then um, you, but the point is is we got into a place where okay I will separate it takes her a lot more time because she has to cool off for you know an hour before she can even contemplate think about listen and come back and calmly revisit but we got to that place it's that it's that listening quiet peace because when you're in conflict it's so hard to stop that, separate, and come back. But that, to me, is where, where that helps. Yeah. What's worked for you? Well, I, just, I, I mean, <laughs> I think it's taken me a long time, but, and I think I'm still working on it. But I think that pausing before responding, because mm -hmm. it's so easy to be reactionary in the mm -hmm. moment, but I think taking the time to, to pause and breathe and not be reactive mm -hmm. is... And not overreact. Not exactly. Yeah. And once it gets elevated, we know this in every argument we have, whether it's a married couple or with a child or with a friend or with a stranger. You know, once once it gets elevated, we stop thinking irrational. We just want to win the argument. It it ceases to become what it started as, and you have to step back. And it's in those moments of stepping back. Not even and and people who are not Christian would say psychologically this is a good strategy, but. For us, as spiritual people, this is the opportunity. You see, because if I'm yelling at you and you're yelling at me, there's no place for the Spirit to speak to us. And in that moment, uh, maybe ideal comment for the one spouse that realizes you need to stop. Any suggestions on what are good, positive phrases to say to kind of help the yeah. other person cool down? Yeah, absolutely. So, so one of the things that we have opportunity to do is, is premarital counseling. And, and we always have at least one session where it's both of us. Um, and, and often it's because Corey's over there going, are you listening to what you're saying, pal? Like, <laughs> this is good stuff, but are you doing that? But the reason I say that is, in the midst of an argument is not the time to go, you know, hey, we're gonna start. You, you have to set up, you have to be proactive. And so you have to set up 
you know, if you will, safe, safe words or whatever else. I've recognized that I'm out of control or you're out of control and we need to step back. If you don't talk about that before you're in conflict, then you will never do it in conflict. And so before you do it, you say, well, actually, one of the greatest things, Corey gave me this little poem. Oh, what was it? I forget what it is now. I remember she gave me this, this poem and it was about, you know, uh, basically this idea of stopping in the middle of an argument. So, so I remember she put a magnet, she put it on the fridge door, and one time we're having an argument in the kitchen, and then she just turned and said, right? And, and I was like, I don't care about that. I don't want that. But, but we had not sat down and said, hey, let's agree to some terms here. When we recognize that we are out of control or that we're going somewhere where we're hurting each other and we're going in circles, how can we get to a place where one of us can say, and this is the big thing, in those arguments, it's always you, you, you. You have to change it to I. Yeah. I, I'm feeling really out of control here. I need to step away. I need some space. Now, what I'm also communicating is you need to do the same thing. But the moment that I tell her to walk away, then it's confrontational. Mm -hmm. And so turn it to, to where I am. Actually, my wife has that same sensibility because when I first started trying to practice this with my daughter, I would just shut it down. It's over. Let's go to our separate corners. And she, and that's exactly what she said. Well, now your daughter feels you don't care about what she's saying, yeah. right? This is not over, but we need to pull back, right? Um, the other thing that uh, I was just going to say as you were speaking on that, on that note is that whole idea of making a commitment of, of this, 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 we can't just let that fester because it will grow and become bigger, right? Uh, this will have to be the last question. One of the things when you brought up the children and you were explaining kind of how you handle it with your kids, we have the exact same, I can, I can see us all standing there doing that. One of the things that we did tell our children though is that conversation can't even happen until we went to our kids and said, there's nothing you cannot come and tell us mm -hmm. where we will not be on your side. But I get 30 seconds, 30 minutes, an hour and a half, one night sleep to rant, rave, cry, tear, wrestle my own life with God. But I will come back to you in the morning or in a minute and go, okay, that's an awful, what do we do now? But I'm always on your side. Mm -hmm. But before I'm your parent, I'm still a human being. I'm still disappointed. I'm still hurt. But, but I don't ever want them not to come to me. Mm -hmm. but, but I had to acknowledge that I can't go from, I am mom, I'm this, this, or this. Oh, okay. Well, then, I know. I've got to process that stuff. Yeah. But I never shut them down. But it was, don't be afraid to come, but let mama have her, like, whoa moment, too. Yeah. But I promise in the morning, we're good to go. Let's figure this out. I apologize, but people are waiting at the door. Thank you so much for your attention today Thank and your you. contribution. Thank you.